It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. If you're hearing the sound of my voice right now, that's because you're either listening live and you are in the chat room, or you've happened upon a pre-edit copy of the Scoob Obsessed Netcast. Come back in a few hours and we will have an edited version already for you. Scoob Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba the news. Scoob Obsessed Episode 305 is recorded live November 3rd, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we had Frost and the Pumpkins. The Cubs won the World Series, and that certainly means that hell Michigan is soon to be freezing over. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. And we also have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Darren, I'm doing excellent. How about yourself? I am doing great. And I'd like to thank everybody's in the chat room. We have quite a few people showing up, and I, I'm going to mark that off is that we are in that time of year right before the time changes where it is getting dark early. So what else are you going to do on a Thursday night? Because the Thursday, Thursday dives are slowly becoming night dives even in the afternoon. Let's see. We well, have it like, Go ahead. It looked like the uh, Thursday Thursday was uh, popular enough that we had competing dives. I think we had a group both in the river, and we had a group that went up to Lake 16, it sounded like. So we had quite a few divers from the club oh, out this around. Lake 16 on a Thursday. That's a good one. Yeah, Mike Webb was making a post about that. And it's only he had a few guys went up with him there, too. So I'm not quite sure how, how it turned out yet. I'll be taking a look at the posts and seeing what they had going on. But, yeah, we had quite a few divers in the water just tonight even. Excellent. Yeah, the, the Lake 16, it's good this time of year. I'm sure the algae is already starting to die off, so hopefully that means visibility is improving. Last time I was in there, which was less than a, about six, eight weeks ago, it was not great visibility. Well, actually, I, I, I'll correct that. Where I was, it wasn't great. They said once you got down about 60 feet, it wasn't too bad, but. I now, was that because of being in your area? Was that something no. that, was that an effect you were having the visibility there, Darren? I, I'm, I'm towards the end of the dive. I did make it mucked up, but uh, <laughs> coming, coming down, that was a pre-me. Uh, and I, I just think it's the time of the year. The algae was dying, and that's a, kind of a silty lake. If anybody stirs it up, it seems to be stirred up for a while. But they said when they got down to the bottom of the dive lights, the dive lights went away, but it was dark. And this was uh, during the day on a weekend. Yeah, so, I'm seeing quite a bit of that right now. Where we have a lot of the lakes, they have a very heavy algae layer. Um, if you manage to get below the algae layer, it uh, cleans up real nice. But until then, it can be pretty thick and gross. Yeah. So we're getting that time of the year where it's just going to get better and better all the way until I call the nirvana of freshwater 
diving as far as clarity, which is when we get ice on the top. Now, it's not a guarantee. I've, I've done a, what we did Singer Lake that one time, Mac, and I doubt we had 12 inches of viz under the ice. That was on your shore, yes. Well, you know, go ahead. I've been I've been finding out from some of the early season diving that uh, you know there's this everyone kind of expects that first ice out to be some of your great your best visibility, um, but from my experience, I'm seeing it looks as though that uh, when the ice first goes out, you still have an awful lot of uh, very small particulate in the water, mm-hmm. which does not take much to get kicked up. And just the least wind will blow that up. And it takes a couple of weeks for that really to go t- t- to die down. But then roughly two weeks after ice out, your visibility is, is quite startling. That's when I was getting close to 30-foot visibility in Woods Lake. It was about two weeks after, after ice out. Yeah. I remember Mac, I, I took Mac out there you know, about three weeks after that. And we still had 15-foot vis in Woods Lake, which is kind of unheard of. So. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, there seems to be, I don't know if it's because dust and debris collects on the ice and then you've got the wind is now able to move the water column around so anything loose gets circulated up, but I agree with you. You would think that because it tends to be good late season under the ice, that when the ice melts it would be nice, but that there's a couple-week period you know, I'd, I I probably only need a couple thousand more dives before I get it quite figured out, but uh, it does seem to tend that way. I'd like to thank everybody's in the chat room. We have St. Louis Sam, we have Eric, we have uh, Southwest Michigan. Uh, so we will be changing up the chat room here pretty soon. Uh, I'm still doing some work on video, uh, but that's we do. We're slowly progressing and making the necessary changes for that to happen. Uh, there's a lot of little gotchas. I'll, I'll have to write a post once we do change the video to explain why it is so much more complicated. But part of it has to do with your networks that you're feeding into. And we've had to re-secure rights to everything, including the the sounds within the show and the bumper music and all that's going to have to, it might have to change. But let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article up, and uh, if you'd like to follow along, we'll paste those into the chat room. And also our Patreon supporters of $3 or more a month get the show notes before the show actually starts, so they're able to follow along with us. And we have some gentlemen who are in trouble for surfing on a turtle. Uh, they weren't actually in the water, but they they posted on Facebook two guys standing on a turtle. And uh, probably not the smartest thing to do in the first place. And then if you do something that stupid, you really don't want to put it on Facebook. Uh, the picture shows two mans with cans of beer standing on top of a turtle. It's been circulating as authorities tried to find them. Surfed as a tortoise on the weekend. Gnarly dude is the caption. The unknown men are being investigated by the Queensland Park and Wildlife Service and could face a fine of 19965 Australian dollars, which is about $15,000 in U.S. The authorities find that they interfered with a natural resource. There is some evidence to suggest the turtle was deceased at the time of the photo. 
they're taking this matter seriously and investigating further. Uh, spokesperson Michael uh, Beatty uh, told the Fraser Coast Chronicle that these guys are just complete idiots. And as we're accustomed to know, that people who are idiots tend to post idiocy on Facebook. Well, looking at the at the picture, the the turtle does look pretty raw. I mean, it's hard to say if he's dead or not, but. Um... Well, the thing is, if he if he died, was his death the cause of these gentlemen on, or did they just happen to find a deceased turtle? But that, that's a good question. You know, but looking at it, though, I mean, there's, I don't know, you know, looking at a, at an article on Able.com, article news, I can't quite give you. But, but if you if you search up uh, men who served on a turtle are in big trouble, you'll come up with this article here, and. Yeah, there's definitely, they're doing a kind of a glamorized selfie here, standing in the back of this turtle, which uh, is less than enthused. Yeah. But, you know, looking at it, I don't know, I'm kind of, I'm trying to zoom in and look at, looking at the, the turtle closely, and I don't see any any indication in the sand that the flippers are moving anytime recently. So it, it may have already been dead when they found it. Um, yeah. And then the other thing would be, would a tortoise with people harassing it like that leave its head out of its shell? Wouldn't it try and draw back in a little you bit? Think, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, I mean, the downside of this is, is you know, if it's dead, then you know, no harm, no foul. I'm sure somebody's going to try and get him for harassing a dead tortoise. But the other thing that runs into this is just uh, copycat people who uh, may do it to a live one. I mean, cl- clearly it's done in very bad taste. Uh, it's a criminal, I guess. Let's kind of see, was it a live turtle or not? So, yeah. Uh, shouldn't be hard to find the guys. I mean, the, the, their names are right here on the post. Oh, is it on the – well, yeah, you'd think that that wouldn't be hard. Oh, yeah, they blocked it out in the in the shot that I've, I'm seeing. But, yeah, you would – seems like you'd be able to reverse that somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that, that that's blocked out because of – Simply the, uh, you know, the person who post, who's posted the article blocked it out, but um, true whoever has access to this image here has access to that name. Yeah. So. <laughs> A study conducted on three lake chain of lakes found an improvement in the spread of an invasive species. They're referring to the milfoil, which is not something that we like to see in the water. Uh, the Aquatic Invasive Species Coordinator Stephanie Balsamu, Balsamu says that milfoils easily transported from lake to lake, but the fall survey found promising results. Preliminary results have been very promising. The treatment they've had, Virgin Lake found that e, uh, EWM or erosion, uh, Eurasian milfoil uh, are in low density. Single plants and clumps are here and there. The lake group is going to be managed via hand harvesting with scuba diving. Town line found a single plant back in 2015. I don't think they found any sense a plant was found then. If the lake management company performs a survey and they see one or two plants, they will pull it out. Long Lake found that 12 plants, which is low dense, she says doesn't warrant herbicide treatment. Results are preliminary, she says, and a full report will be available in the near future. It grows in early spring. Uh, 
before native plants grow and tends to block sunlight from later plants can also clog up portions of the lake, making it difficult to navigate in. But to me, aren't they so invasive? If you only have one plant, isn't that all it takes? I know Mac has done a lot of looking into invasive species. He's probably the guy to ask about this. What do you think, Mac? It doesn't take long for milfoil if it's uh, not treated to overgrow a, a lake very quickly. And a uh, prime example is Pawpaw Lake. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, as a result of the milfoil invasion they had there. It went into a five-year program of trying to treat it. And they've done a pretty good job using the chemical treatment. But if you've dove there at all this year, you'll notice the uh, water is brown. Visibility averages three feet. Even in the, well, if you go deeper, like uh, I think you were out there with me once where we went down, you went, what, 30 some odd feet mm-hmm. off the side. Uh, with light, you had pretty good vis. So the treatment worked, but visibility has gone to heck in a handbasket. Part of it is because now you've got so much decaying vegetation mixed around, mm-hmm. it's created other issues. Uh, well, that, and I mean, that's where, Mac, where you and I were uh, diving targets we saw on the sonar, and uh, it stinks down there. I mean, that stuff is rotting, and it's putrid. You know, I, I've been on the bottom of plenty of lakes, but uh, what's going on in that lake is uh, I've never come across something quite so foul down there. <laughs> so you think that's the milfoil, the, like the king milfoil that's doing that? That's, that's part of it. They also, um, down over in Duncan, not Duncan Bay, but the... Uh, Outland Bay, mm-hmm. that's where they've got the aerators now uh, because they're also trying to aerate the bottom to try to get more organic life. And uh, that may have had something to do with the visibility going back in the handbasket because even though it's a low-volume bubbler system, they've got like 15 out there, and it's agitating. That puts the oh, particulate yeah. in suspension, which then rotates throughout the lake. Oh, yeah. And that's got to be a contributing factor for the lousy biz out there. Yeah, unless you're doing something like an aquarium filter where you're you're drawing the water in through a filter before it gets, you know, the bubbles bring it to the surface. You're just circulating that fine particulate, which is part of the goal, but it, it could take years, if not decades, <coughs> for that to finally work its way up. Because from what I understand is another thing with the bubblers is you've you've got this muck at the bottom of the lake and that cycle... Uh, starts to it, the goal is to get that instead of it being three feet of muck, maybe two and a half feet of muck, it would slowly start to break down. Yeah, one of the uh, considerations I had was bringing a barge out and trying to remove several feet of muck from the lake because uh, some of the sections out there are like 15 feet of muck. I think that's a good idea if you could find. If if the muck was not contaminated and you could use it, because I bet that's got to be a nice organic fertilizer. Well, that yeah. it goes back several years ago when you couldn't get fertilizer. They had a, it was hard to get good stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of the plate like Singer Lake, for example, there's not a lot of agriculture there. But if you've dove it, you know there's a bed layer along the sides because it's steep, uh, four, five, six feet of mm-hmm. decayed leaves. Yes. If you could bring that up, you've got some nice, you know, you've got some nice matter that if you dried it out, you'd have some good fertilizer. Yeah, and that's but, a and that's a type of fertilizer. It's a very slow release. 
Uh, if you look at some of these organic fertilizers and you got the numbers in the bag, they tend to be low numbers, but they they do remarkably well. Now, this it's amazing what we've got out there right now. You've got 25 invasive species of fish in the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. That's just fish in the Great Lakes, which has changed it forever. And now we're getting more and more waterborne type of vegetation issues, and we're getting a lot of them that are on dry land too. It's 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 a never-ending cycle. Oh point. yeah, I uh, like if you look at some of these nature centers, which only deal with uh, dry land plants. There's tons of plants. We, we as European visitors, we brought plants from our home country, uh, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not, but they've just taken hold. I mean, there's mustard plants and all sorts of... Yeah, but but I think a lot of it, we're just going to have to get used to a a changing ecosystem because, you know, once these things have... uh, you know, establish a foothold, um, we're not going to get rid of them. I mean, there's so many different, um, you know, species, whether they are plant or animal, uh, that, you know, we just have to look at our, our environment's going to be constantly changing. You know, yeah. there's no way we, we, we keep it, we would keep it stable. I mean, so many of the other, other fish species we like are technically invasive species. I mean, you know, uh, you know, most of our sport fish, um, you know, king salmon, um, Coho salmon, uh, Atlantic salmon, <laughs> uh, steelhead, um, which is also a rainbow trout. Uh, these things have all been imported, and whenever they've been imported, they have changed the ecosystem. Um, I think your only, you know, natural sport fish here are the uh, lake trout, and you know they're not doing very well. well actually, I think that they are doing quite well, but they've had a really hard time trying to get them to naturally reproduce. Um, yeah, but 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 that you're doing quite well. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. It's all going to take time. And the Great Lakes, based on how it was formed, is a unique system anyway. So, was this inevitable even without human involvement? Uh, would these other species eventually have found their way into the Great Lakes? It was hard to because a lot of the waterborne are from the ballast water of ocean freighters. Yeah. So they're, they're coming from Europe. Right. Which they normally would not have been here. An example of a different one, though, is, of course, Asian carp. Right. You know, we brought those over off the Mississippi, and they were used to clear ponds out for fishermen. But when the Mississippi overflowed, they got into the Mississippi River. And you know where we stand with that today. Oh, yeah. I expect well, to see a new and, article on that any time now. Well, and, and it's not just the you know the fish and the wildlife that are changing, but we're changing it ourselves. You know, with some of these lakes, where you know it's, it's high dollar real estate, and everyone wants to have a nice lush green lawn, which means lots of fertilizer. Well, the phosphates getting in the water is also doing a lot for the algae blooms. And you know, I've had people tell, divers tell me about diving a uh, you know Woods Lake back in the '80s and. At that time, you could see artifacts in the bottom that had been there for a century. Um, you're not seeing that today. T- today, you have several feet of muck. You know, in most of the lakes we dive, you get down there, and you have feet of muck down there. And you know, all the different artifacts and things which you know have been left by our, you know, ancestors or Indian artifacts and things, they're pretty well lost forever in the muck. 
I mean, it's but the idea of getting barges out there to pull that stuff out, like you talk about there at Pawpaw Lake, that sounds good, but tremendous labor-intensive. <laughs> I mean, good yeah. luck with that. So, well, another factor we haven't really talked too much about, but it's again due to the population growth, is a lot of our lakes are going away. Uh, I'll use Barren Lake for an example. It's drying up. And why is that? It's because we've parked, you know, we have taken our water systems away. We use them. We don't have septic systems. We now put them in a sewer system that takes it out someplace else. So the mechanism we have for replenishing our, our inland ponds, our lakes, is going away. And if you fly over, like um, Sister Lakes, all five of them, look at the pictures from the last 25, 30 years. They're all getting smaller and much shallower because, one, local people, of course, suck the water out to do the lawns, suck the water out to do local irrigation, and it's not being able to be replenished. So we're losing a lot of our lakes through our own use of the water. Well, then, and, you know, I think the you know, glaciers are also getting shallow just due to the, the algae die-off and what you have as far as the bacteria, um, you know, what – what makes the muck in the bottom of the lake? You know, when the, the, the muck is coming up, the water's going down, and the end result is losing, losing the lake in one way or another. So we might have to, you know, start digging holes. You want to keep on being divers in this area eventually. So. <laughs> yeah. Not that I haven't thought of that. So we have a Lake Superior shipwreck discovered near Ontario, Canada. Uh, they're saying that, uh, what's, which one is this? Is a J.S. Severns uh, near Misha Soden Harbor? Is that the I'm going to yeah. let you pronounce that. Yeah. Back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm usually good at Indian names, but this one's a little rough for me. Uh, in May of 1884... Yeah, but this this is a beautiful wreck. I mean, being in Lake Superior, you don't have the zebra mussels. And, you know, looking at the picture of this diver on the bow, we're looking at uh, TwinCities.com, um, Lake Superior shipwreck discovered, and even the dishes survived. Um, this is a boat which uh, went down quite gently in 1884. Sounds like they backed into a piling or some kind of obstruction in the stern. Tried to make a run for the far shore, didn't make it, and down they went. Um, it's a very impressive looking shipwreck. Yeah, they, either they got in a good day or it was just beautiful clarity. The one where they show the ship's wheel, uh, this is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, just look at the shot of the diver on the bow. I mean, well, what we're looking at here is, uh, you know, it's and, and obviously there are two divers down there because there's the, the diver in the yeah. shot and the diver who, who, who took the shot. Yeah. And we've got a large bow here. Uh, we're seeing a huge anchor. We're seeing pretty much the entire stock of the anchor in the shot. Um, how big was this boat? Like I want to say it was 219. Um, yeah, that, that anchor looks like, a little bit like the anchor that's on Max Rack. Uh, let's see here. Uh, do they say the the see it had 15 crew members and 45 passengers? 
Maybe it wasn't 219. It was shorter. It's smaller than that. Wow, those plates yeah. are beautiful in there. But I would Thanks. encourage our listeners to look up the uh, lake. You know, just Google search Lake Superior Shipwreck Discovered, even the dishes. If you yeah. search up those words, you come up with this article here of the J.S. Severns and Lake Superior. Oh, it's 130 foot long, so it wasn't a yeah. real big one. Yeah, and uh, but, we'll we'll have links to this in the show notes, which uh, Jim Billings has been graciously taken care of. And then also all our Patreon supporters got an early copy, so the link is also in there. Uh, I think but, Darren put a link in the chat room already, it looks like, so yeah, you guys should yeah, be able to take a look. But those here. those dishes, I mean, look at them. That 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 went down pretty nice, and you don't see uh, – yeah, I'm not seeing any obvious breaks. Well, I'm not seeing the depth listed in this in this article. They're talking about it being relatively shallow. They mentioned it being it shallow. 100, I thought it was 130. Thought so, 130 was the length of the boat. Is that, that the depth as well? That's what I thought. I'm looking at the guy. He's not on the rebreather, but he does have side mounts. Yeah. yeah. Well, with side mounts, so that that could either be a technical diver or a sport diver. That's. I mean. Um, so it's it's a hundred and thirty feet long, a hundred and thirty two years ago. Let's see, I'm trying to see if anywhere they talk about the depth. Yeah, it looks like they're being a little bit uh, facetious about the location of it. They're probably it's a new find and they're not encouraging others to dive it. So they're probably not gonna say exactly the depth in the article. Yeah, I have I have a feeling it's if this is superior with that with a clarity this looks like maybe 80, 90 feet, maybe. I don't know. It's really, it's... It's hard to, because you can color correct to such an extent that it can make it lighter or darker, but... Yeah, but his his gloves are pretty close to correct, pretty close to correct. And if they did a lot of uh, color correction on this, I mean, you can even t- see the, the green nitrox. Well, if he's diving nitrox, it's not that deep. Well, they're, they're saying it's, a, it's a, in sport depth, so... Um, but you know, you you look at his um, at the divers' um, dry gloves there, mm-hmm. and that's that that blue color is pretty accurate. So if that blue color is pretty accurate, then I'm, I'm going to say the green color probably is pretty close as well. So yeah, we're probably not you know we're not talking really deep. You know, yeah, I think you're right, Darren. It's less than 100 feet deep. Yeah. Um, now is that chain that's on that anchor? They've they've got the anchor, and you can see a shackle. And it's hard to tell if that's chain or rope. It seems like it should be chain, but it looks awful smooth, at least in that photo. I think there's some silt in, in the uh, in the links there. Kind of makes it look smoother than it really is. Yeah. So looking at the deck, you can see a fair amount of silt built up on the deck. But I mean, look at this. You, you can you can not just simply see the boards, but you can see the caulk in between the boards. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's some that's some pretty good clarity here. So. Yeah. Now, where are those plates? Because right next to the plates, it looks like there's some, like, is that by a chain locker? Uh, stack of dishes. And they don't say, but look, if you look to the right, it looks like there's some chain looped over something. Yeah, it kind of does. It, it's hard to say. I mean, the plates probably would have been in some kind of a chest or a, a bureau of some sort. To... Yeah. And they've got yeah. a, a heating stove and a dead eye. There next set of photos. Yeah, but this this is a heck of a find here. Yeah. Um, hopefully, at some point they'll. But it it sounds like in the article 
it's a very isolated area that you know it closes stating that they have no soon plans to return just simply due to the difficulty of getting a boat and diving equipment in the area so you're probably not going to get your tanks filled up there is what i'm thinking yeah you you have to go up and and intend to go there but that if you're a if you're a diver and, and you just want to check off as many shipwrecks as you can, this would certainly be one you'd want to get on. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and they'll find one that hasn't been explored and it's in sport depth. Yeah. I mean, that's probably why they're being so tight-lipped in the location because, yeah, there would be quite a few who'd like to, like to pillage it. Well, so. yeah, you, you look at all those plates. There's not a plate's been taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that, that tells you that at the you know, provided everybody was honest, nobody has been uh, on this wreck before the 1990s. Just looking at another report on it, when they first found it, they used a drop camera, which usually tells me it's a little deeper. You just don't want to do an exploratory. You want to go down and look and see what it looks like first. Yeah. Well, it doesn't say any depth. Yeah, well, we're known to do uh, to do to dive on stuff deeper than what most people would on a first dive. I remember we did that bar that barge and crane, and uh, I think if you got a drop camera, you want to use it. But that, that, I mean, that's a good point. If it was, I'd say less than sixty feet, you certainly wouldn't waste the time with a drop camera. Yeah, but you know, drop cameras and things, you've always got issues with entanglement. Are you gonna Are you gonna get it back? You know, I mean. Yeah. I'm a yeah, fan. Uh, if, if, if it's in sport depth, put a put, put put a diver on it. I'd do it. Sent another link real quick. Uh, different pictures of it, the closer ones and video. And uh, I think the distinguishing feature you keep saying there's no crag muscles on it. And most people got to remember the reason Lake Superior doesn't have as much. Uh, either quag or zebra mussels is because it doesn't have the same amount of calcium in the water that they need to produce their shells. And that's why Lake Superior doesn't have the infestation that the other Great Lakes do. Now, I wonder if at some point in time, and maybe that's why we're seeing the populations lower down here, but it, unless you have a, an unlimited supply of calcium, you'd eventually run out. True. So maybe yeah. you're thinking that the uh, population might max out at some point? I mean, we've kind of seen it already. I remember when I first started diving, you did not, um, except for the very beginning of the season, like the first month, and that was from sand being moved uh, every bare spot. I mean, if you had a, a buoy, uh, usually by June in the in the dive season, that the line going up the buoy was all, uh, zebra mussels. And now I've seen some lines, assuming uh, divers aren't wearing the mussels off, where there's not even uh, zebra mussels on the subsurface buoy. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so maybe we've well, I... turned that part of the ecology cycle. And I think these next three articles are all the same related to the same uh, shipwreck that has uh, been discovered in the Baltic Sea. I'll paste that in the chat room.
And what they're doing, which really drew my attention to it, was hundreds of unopened bottles are found on a shipwreck. Uh, Diver Jer, oh my goodness. Jerry uh, Wilmeson. Seems like there's too many consonants and not enough vowels. Uh, was looking for a shipwreck in the south coast of the Asland Island, Finland's autonomous Swedish, Swedish, Swedish-speaking islands between <laughs> Stockholm and Helsinki. When he came across a discovery sitting on the front of him at a shallow depth, was a well-preserved 27-meter-long shipwreck, complete with anchor, figurehead, and hundreds of unopened bottles. Uh, him and his diving team. What the, what's that? What kind of bottles? Well, if you look in the photo, uh, they're uh, bottles, what we call those amphora, uh, amphoras, okay. Amphoras, yeah, where they're the kind of the, they have that torpedo shape. Uh, that's what I'm guessing. Or now in the photo, they're saying that's a ship's figurehead. <laughs> but that yeah. to me, that's what it looks like, one of those amphoras. Uh, well, I thought they're talking about it. An 18th century wreck, which wouldn't be on amphoras, or 19th century. Right, that's a figurehead. It's just in the shape of an amphora, so I'm I misspoke there. Yeah, amphoras would be like you know ancient Roman ships or something there. Right. Yeah. You go to your first pictorial or your first selection, blow up the picture. You'll look like they look like the old bottles from the Wild West. Looking at them, look like a glob top, whiskey bottle. Oh, I see it now. Yep, the very first photo. I yeah, thought that. You went, yeah, you have to look at it. It looks like uh, it looks like what we're finding in the river, actually. Right. It's hard to tell if you got a crown top on it, but they look like the whiskeys that we usually find. Oh yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I see it now. Yep. And kind of like they look almost like they were between the floorboards. Don't let the captain know. Smuggler's <laughs> ship here. Crew staff. It's a, it's a smuggler's ship. That's what we got here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you can see they got that next shot. Uh, so this is, I mean, he calls it good condition. Maybe it is for the for the Baltic, but it's starting to break down pretty good. Uh, well, if that's salt water, you're going to have all sorts of uh, animal life eat that stuff up. Yeah, but you've got a windlass there on uh, the next shot. At least that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, I was trying to determine if that is, because if it is, it's bowed. Well, is it bowed or is that just the... Fish eye? fish eye the camera lens yeah because uh, sometimes when you fix it for certain parts of the shot you kind of warp it for some of the others and the other one they're saying is a figurehead on the ship but at first when i i saw that i thought it was a skeleton <laughs> yeah i blew it up and i was trying to look at it and if you look at the head it does look like a a skeleton head yeah but i'm guessing that they got close enough to it to realize it's all made out of wood. Well, nice finds. This, this shows you that they, not everything uh, that's out there has been found already. I want to know what's in the bottles, though. You know, just looking at somebody smuggling a hooch. What do we got? What we got here? Just the words kind of all laying on its side is a little suspect. It seems like it would have been in crates. Now crates could have 
rusted away, but it doesn't seem like they'd be even. Like you see the up there, it looks like like it's a whiskey flask style bottle. Uh, yeah. They definitely got have caps on them. You look at them, I mean, they're, they're all capped. I mean, where, where you can see an end, especially like in your lower left, they're all they're all stopped up yet. So. Oh yeah, I can see it there. Yeah, you're right. That's got a stopper on it. I don't know. Everyone I've ever heard of who's sampled, you know, uh, shipwreck brew has been pretty disappointed with it. So. Yeah, I. I yeah, it's better to drink it fresh, and that's what we need to do to make sure that our current liquor supply doesn't become shipwreck liquor, is we just need to drink it all. Okay, that's a plan. But excellent find. I mean, that had to have been a blast to come across. So they're saying that the ship style suggests that it dates from between 1850 to 1870. So great job. And then we've got some potentially, I call it cool scuba gear or just scuba gear in the news. Uh, this next one's talking about in the Antarctic, the trends that we see in the warmer waters uh, are translating down there. They, they said it takes a little bit of time for technology can be vetted to be used in Antarctica, which we're now approaching their uh, summer or uh, primary season. And they're taking rebreathers down to do some tests, make sure that they're viable for that environment. Yeah, they've, they've been viable for that. Uh, I know uh, Jill Heinrich has done a lot of work uh, with uh, Arctic ice caves, mm-hmm. and she actually prefers the rebreather over the um, traditional open circuit, uh, you know, tanks in the back kind of diving. Yeah. Um, well, rebreather has. Go ahead. A number. Rebreather has a number of advantages for doing that. I mean, for, for one, you're you're breathing warm air. It's a pit pulls to the you know the cold compressed air. Um, yeah, rebreathers are quite superior for diving cold water. So. Yeah, you're going to get that the warmth from that, and then you also have uh, it's moist air, so it's not as dry. Uh, Correct. But, yep. But they're saying that they're trying out six different rebreather systems. I said, if successful, future science projects will be allowed to use the new dive technology under sea ice which could open up new science opportunities. This, pro- this project is really just to see how well they work. And if we feel comfortable with possibly recommending them to our diving control board, who'd make the decision to decide if they're worthwhile, said John Hind of Jacksonville University and principal investigator of the evaluation project. You know, here, here I'm, I'm going to call a little conspiracy here because I, this is what I would be doing. Hey, uh, dive manufacturers, Send me some rebreathers, and we'll try it out and see if uh, we can make a recommendation. It's an excuse to go out and play with the cool toys. Exactly. Totally. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I'd be doing. Uh, Most diving equipment is factory tested. The industry standard is 4 degrees Celsius, but the water around Antarctica can get as low as minus 1.8 degrees Celsius, 28.8 degrees Fahrenheit, because rebreather systems haven't been tested at such extreme temperatures the dive team and diving control board, which oversees the safety procedure of the program, want to test the system and ensure that they're safe. 
And I'm I'm calling bull on that because we know that that equipment's been dope. Now the the equipment manufacturers themselves may not be certifying it, but we know Bob's been in the river with it icing up. Oh yeah. I, so I, we might not get quite the twenty eight, but I'm sure he got to thirty. And there have been plenty of divers who have used them on ice dives, um, you know, in extremely cold environments. I mean, Jill Heinrich has, you know, she did a major exploration on these ice caves in the in the um, the Arctic. Yeah. And lots of photo ops and things. It was a really, she had a really cool presentation on it, actually. Well, and to me, if and, you really wanted to test it for cold temperatures, you wouldn't do it in the live environment. You'd actually create a test rig, and you would chill water. You would you would come up with some sort of water mixture where you could actually get it colder. Because oh yeah. You're you're trying to find a theoretical limit and see if the if the the operating environment changes on it. So they're not just talking about water temperature. You realize that they're talking about the surface interval temperature between I'm driving from point A to point B for several hours. It's in the back of my car freezing. Yeah. Now I'm going to use it. Then I'm going to go to a warming hut that changes in temperature. What effect is it going to have? Right. But wouldn't you want to test that in a lab? I mean, you could set up. uh... But we have it. We do that now. It's cold. It's below 30 when we're diving sometime. We've had it, what, zero? Yeah. So we are, we are already being the, the yeah. guinea pigs. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is if, if you're so concerned that you would be concerned about recommending to anybody, wouldn't you do those tests in advance in a controlled environment before you would take them into the wild and that be your life support system? So... I, what I'm guessing is they've already pre-decided that this is safe enough, but they're just trying to use the the actual environment to see if they can discover any outliers. You know, maybe it's not so much that it can't handle the cold, but maybe it's a combination of the cold and bouncing around the back of a truck that makes a hose brittle that cracks, and then you have something you didn't anticipate. I think the other aspect, too, though, is when you're diving the Antarctic, for example, you were doing a very structured dive and control dive. Most of the people around here were not doing such a structured dive. Because mm-hmm. you're not going through six foot, ten foot of ice to get down yeah. to the water. Now, now that's true. And that would be hard to simulate. Well, I think the most rebreather divers though do a very structured dive. I mean they, they kinda have to just do the nature of the beast. They're, they're a lot more, you know, into dive planning than the typical open circuit diver is. I mean, look, look, look at Bob. I mean, you don't get much more pay attention to, to, to detail than, than than how Bob dives. So, yeah, I, I um, just yeah. think that when you start looking at who's used the rebreathers prior to the civilians, I can't believe the military has not done a lot of these testings, like lockouts from submarines at different depths in oh, different yeah. oceans. Yeah, the Antarctic diving; these have already been done. Yeah, in, in, I think uh, part of it is. They pay a different amount of attention to the safety factors than sport divers do in many instances. Yeah, and, and we have some listeners of the podcast who are with the uh, U.S. Research Dive Team, so that they could drop, drop us a line and maybe, uh, if they can tell us, uh, give us an idea of what kind of parameters have they decided are okay for rebreather use. Because uh, you know that the military has been using them long uh, 
they have to know that because they that's a primary strategic tool in uh, underwater situations. Good article, though. Yeah. And then the next one is talking about Nikon. Uh, it's their, we, we covered this a, a few episodes ago. They've got their action cameras. And I didn't really realize this at the time, but they've actually got three action cameras. And the model number in the action camera name uh, refers to the angle of view that the camera is able to deliver. So we covered the 360, the key mission 360 from Nikon. So that gives you a 4K image that's all the way around 360 degrees. They have the key mission 170, which is 170 degrees, and the key mission 80, that's 80 degrees. Nice thing about these cameras is that they're all rated for underwater use down to, uh, let's see, now, I've, I've seen it two different. Um, right now they're saying that the 170 is waterproof down to 33 feet. They said Nikon is, op, is offering an optional underwater housing to 131. I saw another article that it was actually 131 uh, without the housing. So let's see. Uh, but I like the idea, and I like the setup. I wonder if they have to adjust anything in the software for stitching. Seems like you'd have a little bit of a distortion uh, difference between above water and underwater for stitching. Yeah, I don't know much about the 360 cameras. I can say the one that's in the, that's shown here for the for the picture appears to be in a housing, and it says right on it that it's you know waterproof to, to, to 132. Yeah, so that that's what's kind of conflicting between them. Well, if, if you click on the key mission action camera, mm-hmm. highlight it, that takes you to the specs. Yeah. Yeah, that's to the, to the uh, bottom part. Just the key features of those and the depths. Yeah. yeah. So until I see otherwise, or until I buy one, I, I this is seriously on my short list. This Nikon, uh, because I like the idea of it being the 360. It's really two 180 degree cameras uh, put back to back. And then they're using software to stitch the image together to give you a 360 view. Um, yeah, I, I've I've looked at what some of the other underwater divers are doing. Some of them are are putting uh, the GoPros into these camera rigs where they're able to fit six cameras on it and then stitch together. But you're dealing with a very large file. Uh, and that's a, that's a quite involved workflow. So unless you're going to be ending up in National Geographic or something, it seems like that's a little overkill. But I, I like this one. Now, most of them look like they have a depth without a case and a quadruple the depth with a case. Yeah, maybe this might r- require writing the Nikon, seeing what they could do for us. I'm looked at the aspect where they say freeze-proof, to 14 degrees. Never really thought of that one. Now, is that that's assuming that's uh, Fahrenheit? Yes, I'm looking at Fahrenheit. It was just this one particular key feature was just uh, waterproof, definitely to 3.2 feet, shockproof, 6 foot, freeze-proof, freeze proof, 14 foot. That was the uh, key mission 80. 
and that's without the housing. Yeah. Well, I think some of them they're using these. They this is an all-purpose action camera, so part of their idea is that you might be putting this onto a snowboard or skier. They're probably putting that in there just so you, you know what it's rated for. Uh, but the pricing doesn't seem to be too bad. Now these are list prices. Uh, so the key mission action was three sixty, is uh, five hundred dollars, four ninety nine ninety five U.S. Uh, not too bad. You know, a little bit more than I you know, you'd like to pay. But if it's a good camera that can handle it, it's probably worth it. Well, I know Nikon makes you know good good cameras. Uh, most people who um, but I like to shoot a lot, end up gravitating either towards a Nikon or a Canon. Uh, so if it's got the Nikon name on it, it it's it's going to be quite worthwhile. I'm curious about the other specs on it there as far as, you know, the size of the sensor. And, um, you know, I, but yeah, it's, it's got, it has my attention as well. I'd, I'd be most interested in, in the uh, one with the 170-degree uh, field of view on it there. Yeah, because I'm, I'm doing a, looking at close-up at the 360, and right on the the camera image, it says waterproof 30 meters or 100 feet. So I'm guessing that's without the housing, unless they're showing. Yeah, I think that's without the housing. You're getting 100 feet. Uh, I wonder what the housing looks like. If the, if the housing is just a dome over this. Uh, but what I'm guessing is that uh, Nikon uh, came up with this three line of camera so they could reuse many of the components over and over that really what they're doing is they're changing a few items uh, to be able to provide the different specs, you know, lenses in the case of the, the non 360 camera. And then the 360 is just doubling up the, the, the sensors. Uh, cool stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get the specs on that one. Seventy. Okay, well, that does it for Scuba in the News. Uh, Mac, do you have uh, anything you want to talk about, dry suits? Well, I was going to talk about our safety feature for the day <laughs> is uh, dry suits. And I, I, I wear one. I'm not using mine for tech diving or deep diving. But these are concerns that apply to anybody using a dry suit that you might have already experienced or you probably will experience. Uh, Medical concerns was one I was sort of curious about. Number one item was constriction concerns, and they're talking about preventing hand numbness and carotid sinus reflex. And basically, the seals around your neck and your wrist should fit snugly without being too tight, because if they're too tight, you can cause pain in your fingers and your hands, which can lead to numbness, tingling, loss of dexterity, and susceptible to cold injury. If you have carpal tunnel, that will accelerate that and make it a lot longer because I have a lot of issues with it during the summer because I dive so much uh, and it gets better during the winter because I'm not diving as much. So that is definitely a big one. The other one is your neck seal. If that's too tight, it can cause a condition called carotid sinus reflex, which is slowing of the heartbeat and the flow of the, head, uh, flow of the blood to your head, obviously. It makes you feel lightheaded, dizziness, and in some cases, it can make you lose consciousness. So those are items you need to be aware of. Uh, like they said, appropriate trimming and stretching of your seals 
can and will help prevent that constriction aspect. The second item that I've not had to worry about, but I think some people will have it, and I think Bob has one, which is urological concerns dealing with complications from a P-valve. And like they said, they have the unisex type P-valve, but they're talking about the, you can get complications from those such as, it's called pneumomatura, which is passage of air during urination, urogenical infections, and genital or cancer squeeze. None of those sound like something I want to experience. Well, that last one doesn't, doesn't sound really great. I mean, I've had squeeze of dry suits like Vikings on bare skin. And when you come back up, you're bruised. And it's sort of painful if you don't put a little air in that suit. This other one doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Well, I'm wondering if it's a case of, like if, like you said, if you don't put enough air in the suit, it squeezes. But if you have that catheter on, uh, it, it, you're getting a squeeze in maybe a different location. Right. <laughs> and the, the infections they're talking about is if you don't clean the equipment, meaning your P-valve and the equipment to use with your P-valve, you can introduce your own problems. And that's what you really got to watch out for. Mm-hmm. And then they're talking about the, the uh, squeeze aspect is a balanced P-valve system. They said helps prevent that genital squeeze, which is caused by depth-related drop in the capacity of an unbalanced tube or system tubing. So the tubing is going to give you some issues. And the way that's routed, you can mentally figure this out. It'd be painful. Uh, The third most common item, they said, is buoyancy concerns, handling your weighting, inversion, inflation, and suit flooding. And this was a little different than I'm I'm a little used to. It said proper weighting will improve your buoyancy, so your dry suit will require only minimal addition of venting of air, adding or venting. And it said you should use your suit for primary buoyancy control rather than a buoyancy compensator. Now, who's saying that? I'm sorry, what? Who's recommending that? This is a, I have to get my reference back out. I can't find it right now, Uh, but it came from Dan. And this is contrary to what a lot of people may have thought, but their premise is you go down neutral, you have minimal squeeze already. You're always adding air to your suit to get rid of squeeze. So that's why they're not saying you're using your BC for your up and down motion because you're already neutral to begin with. You know, in a way I can go with that because it's, it's kind of like uh, the, the squeeze is your early buoyancy indicator. If it starts pinching you, then you definitely need some more air in it. I just don't like the idea of, you know, it's a bad idea to use your, your BC as like an elevator control. Well, but, that's not what they're, they're not saying that either. They're not saying yeah. go up and down using that because, one, you should not be doing that in your dive profile. Why should you be going up and down? No, I agree. But I'm I'm just saying that <clears throat> there's, the, you know, that's kind of the joke of uh, the rookie divers that they're, you know, that the the BC inflator is a is a an elevator button. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it just seems like. Uh, as tough as it can be for some people to get buoyancy under control to be using your dry suit for that, uh, that can well, be a challenge. 
but but there are some that prefer to use their dry suit for buoyancy control. Oh, that's what that's what the, the dive agencies are, or several of the dive agencies are teaching now, is that no, I know I know yeah. at least one very advanced tech diver who uses his dry suit for his uh, buoyancy control. His VC is basically just just along for the ride to to carry his tanks. Well, they're saying basically your BC is a flotation aid after you're on the surface and as a backup if your buoyancy factor, meaning your inflator on your suit, fails. The opposite part of that aspect is hopefully rare, is dry suit problem where it inflates and you can't uninflate it. Then you got positive buoyancy and uncontrolled ascent. Mm-hmm. And it's about the only thing you can do for that because you're not going to be fast enough to unhook your, your line. Most of us can't with yeah, without a little bit of difficulty on, on the uh, freaking surface when you got mitts on, not gloves. And you're not going to take your knife and rip your suit. So you say you got to flare yourself out and try to use your exhaust button or exhaust valve, have it set so it will start letting it out, but flare out your body to slow your ascent. Yeah. Now, on, on a dry suit, can you put air in your dry suit faster than you can evacuate it? Well, according to this, you should not be able to put more air into it quicker than you can get rid of it. And that's where, and maybe I just haven't been in a situation where I've needed to dump it that quick, but it seems like I can put air in about twice as fast as it can come out. I would have tried it air. the other way. I, I think that you can put air in it fast and you can dump it particularly because, you know, you, the, the dump valve to work properly has to be elevated. You know, I mean, I, I suppose oh, yeah. maybe under an ideal, ideal circumstance, if your dump valve's on the top and, you know, you've got the, you know, the ideal posture for it, it might come close to keeping up with the air going in. But well, that's only in ideal circumstances. They're saying the, the issue is not the amount of air coming in and you're getting rid of. It's that as that starts, once you get out of control on your ascent, you can't because the expansion of the air already exhausted in your suit is going to start increasing right. quicker than your valve can dump. And that's true. The key too. item is trying to stop it before it gets out of control, meaning if you were doing a working dive and it did that, grab something so you can get that exhaust valve going to start dumping what you're going to put in so it doesn't accelerate your, you know, your uncontrolled ascent. But it didn't say it was going to be easy. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's okay. true, and it, it probably depends also the depth that you're at. I think if you're you're deeper, that expansion doesn't seem to happen as much as it, it does when you're at that 50 feet to the surface. Right, but they said, I mean, the inflator sticking on your suit is mm-hmm. just as likely, if not less likely, though, than your inflator sticking on your VC. Yeah. Because you got the same issue there. If that sticks when you start to burp it, you're going up. Yeah. I don't know why I just feel maybe just out of familiarity, but I just don't feel like I can put more air in my BC than what I can vent, but uh, it just might be psychological. Uh, now, did you mention early on that uh, the heating was a factor in the dry suit? Oh, I'm, that, I hadn't got there yet. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I jumped ahead. Right. And then the, the last one was if your dry suit floods, you really do want your BC. And again, they're saying dry suit flooding normally starts with a blown neck seal for catastrophic damage to the suit. And that's where your BCD for buoyancy 
is really going to come in handy. And then the fourth item was thermal concerns, and they talked about the proper use of insulated and electrical heated garments, which Bob now has. And it says, if you're going to wear dry suits, it's important to use the appropriate insulation to protect yourself from cold. And it said effective thermal insulation really is three garments, the base layer, insulating, and a shell. And it talked about the function of each, like the, the base layer, typically made of polyester or polyethylene, wicks the moisture from your skin, which is what you want. The insulating layer, a layer, which is wool, microfiber, fleece, to trap and hold the heat in, to reduce your loss through conduction. And then the shell, and that can be the membrane, neoprene, or hybrid, to help hold the air in to reduce the conductive and convective heat loss. And they talk about factors in considering and choosing the right weight of the insulating layer is the temperature of the water, your metabolism, and your activity level. Because all of those together is what's going to make you hot or cold. And then they talked about the electrical heated garments. One item that can, they stress on is you want to make sure that you have it designed such that if the battery shorts out, you're not going to get burned, meaning it's not going to spontaneously combust inside of your suit. That's going to be hard to manage. The other aspect I thought was interesting was, and I'll read this part, he says, uh, some garments may enhance your underwater comfort, but not used properly, they can increase your risk of decompression sickness. It said, to minimize decompression stress, leave heated garments off or at the lowest setting during descent and bottom phase to minimize the increase in inert gas uptake. Then, Increase the setting moderately for the ascent and the stop phase to encourage inert gas elimination without excessive promotion of localized overheating that can promote bubble formation and skin symptoms. When I first heard you mention this, it, it kind of surprised me. But when you start thinking about it, it makes perfect sense uh, that if you're comfortable and warm, uh, you can be on gassing quicker, and then as you cool down, uh, it could slow up, and then that could create a situation where you're not off gassing at the rate that you think you are. Because so ideally, you'd want to be on gassing and off gassing at the same rate. Yeah. And then the last issue they talked about was uh, dermatological concerns, which is managing rashes, chafing, bruising, and skin bends, and skin bends. I don't think they meant from the DCS skins events where you got the bubbles under the skin. But there's in many, many causes of diving-related skin conditions, which are seals, number one. It says particularly those of latex can irritate the skin. And try using some of the seals made from silicon, neoprene, or gel-type seals, which a lot of guys are doing. Yeah, uh, Ill-fitting suit results in chafing. You can use a barrier cream to protect your skin points or skin at points of contact. Quite often they're in your crotch, believe it or not. Uh, you can also see bruising due to a problem called dry suit squeeze. And I think most of us experience that even in wetsuits, or it's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, caused by failure to add air to your suit during descent. And again, most often occurs between by the valves and the seams. 
Uh, let's see. Skin bends caused by a mild form of DCS. Blotchy, bruise-like rash occurs on the uh, areas of the body with the most fatty tissue, such as the abdomen, thighs, buttocks, and breasts. Sometimes accompanied by dip, deep tissue soreness or tenderness, and sometimes by neurological symptoms, fatigue, blurriness, dizziness, blurred vision, memory impairment. So it's a given attention to the skin bends because that can lead you to think you have something else also. Mm. So those were five items I thought were quite interesting. I think it's a very good article. And this one was from uh, Dan, Divers Alert yes. Network. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's good. If you want to get a copy of the article, that's where to go look for it. But uh, it's it's excellent point. That's it made it made me think because I I just I don't know if I assumed or you know just intellectually had thought that wetsuit diving and dry suit diving are going to be the same, but it does make sense because I've noticed that in the seal. And I think in my case, I really need to trim the seal, but being a cheapskate. And, you know, in your mind, you're always thinking, well, if I lose weight, I don't want to have to redo the seal. Uh, but it may make sense to trim that seal properly in the first place and not have it as tight. Well, I'm working on my wrist seals. I've got a can in mine now to expand them because I get a really good seal on it. And, I mean, it's really too tight. So I'm, I'm trying to minimize that aspect. My next seal is pretty decent. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with my wrist seals. Where I run into a problem is I almost need to have powder. I need to dry my hands off real good when I get out of the water and then powder them to be able to get the seal, to get my dry suit off. I don't have a problem getting my hands in. Uh, and I, I think it's a really nice cut. I've got that Viking dry suit, and I'm real happy with the, the wrist seals. The neck seal, uh, and I just am not one that I don't like anything around my neck. Too many years of wearing a tie, I guess. Uh, but I always feel like the neck seal's too tight, so I probably need to start taking a, a quarter inch off at a time. Uh, or maybe do the tank. You know, does it make sense to put it around a, a, a tank between dives? Would that? I will find something the size of your neck and put that in there and maybe just a skosh. Yeah, I, I think probably I need a big fat ham is probably about my neck size. <laughs> Add that or a turkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Thanksgiving turkey. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's that time of year. So. Just take the quarter inch off at a time. You'll be fine. Yeah. And then uh, Karen, who's in the chat room, was, had pointed out about the, the Nikon camera housing we were talking about. And the underwater housing is only for the key mission 170. So the 360 and uh, whatever the other one was, was it a 130? Uh, they don't have underwater housing. It's only the 170, which explains why the the 360 had a little bit deeper rating without the housing. Uh, and that kind of answered my question because you know that the distortion is going to be a little bit different with a housing and without a housing. So if you're trying to do stitching in the software, it would be a little bit tough. And then Vanessa's Mac said that she was glad to hear you back on the air. So we had fixed your Skype issues that we're running into well we fix them together yes let's hope they stay fixed <laughs> well with skype uh, nothing's forever there, there's always a way of, of messing it up but uh and if 
somebody runs into a problem, even though we aren't an IT support desk, uh, drop us a line because it was uh, an issue that sounded real simple, but wasn't. It had to do that we were getting a message saying uh, cookies were giving us a problem, and you know, I you know the chocolate chip and the peanut butter and those give me problems as well. I eat too many of them, but uh, in the case of these browser cookies, we had to do some research to figure out what was blocking those. Um, so now we're to that time of the show where we get to talk about some actual diving. And even though it is getting colder and we are having some leaves fall into the rivers, there are still people getting out into the water. So what kind of diving has everybody been able to fit in this last week? I think Max had quite a few more in than I have. I got just the one. Not this week. I've been working on an airplane. No? Okay. Um, well, uh, it looks like the club had quite a bit of diving going on just tonight. Um, seeing that uh, there was a group in the river tonight, and I'm saying there was a group that went to Lake 16 as well. Forgive me if I miss anyone here, but it looks like... Uh, John Nadova, Mary Beth, and Rob Knoll were in the river tonight. Um, Mary Beth is saying that she posted some pictures, but I'm not seeing them there. She says they put them, she put them on the web page, but I'm not seeing them. They're on the street Facebook one. Got a good picture of the uh, all the guys there, three of them together, Rob, and uh, 20 pounds of chain she brought up. 20 pounds of chain. Okay. Yep. <laughs> I thought you she said, said the- change at the first point, and it's like, wow, that's a lot of quarters. Yeah, I like that too. Well, she she said two dry suits, one wet suit, and water temperature is down to forty-five. And I'm assuming. Well, let's see if I look in the photo. Maybe I can figure out. Was she was she a dry suit? Right there in that one picture, she's in jeans. Yeah, I know she's in jeans. I'm trying to figure out is that is that uh, shirt she's wearing uh, one that she'd be wearing under a dry suit. Oh, so John was the other dry suit diver because she's got a dry suit, Mary Beth. uh, then I would think she was the dry suit and John was the wet suit because he's young and hale and hearty. Oh yeah, yeah, these, these super fit divers—they just, yeah, you know, they they have that positive uh, calorie burn going. Yeah, you know, lift, lift. You probably lifted some, you know, steel weights and trash before going in, and so he was probably plenty warm. Yeah, probably pumping shopping carts, one on each arm or something. Yeah, exactly. A crock. <laughs> <laughs> the the crock workout maybe you can do a book. What is that thing that she's that they've got with a black object? That's the chain. On? That's the chain. That's chain. Yeah, it's all corroded and lumped together. Ah, okay. Wow. That looks like some crystals. Well, excellent. Well, they're they're getting in the river. Yeah, that looks like uh, Mike Wagner. And a group that went up to uh, Lake 16. It says so himself, Rabbit, and Nick dove Lake 16. The viz is actually pretty good down to about 50 foot. Below that, it drops, but it's hard to estimate how far you can see with a flashlight. The temperature is typical 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so, because they had a decent dive up there, Lake 16 as well. It's not bad when our club can actually have two dives going on simultaneously here. Oh, we're just that massive, you know, all those divers. Did you say 39 degrees? He said 39 degrees in Lake 16. I'm thinking he's talking about on the bottom. I'm not sure how far, how deep they went. Well, that, that sounds logical. If you went to the bottom of the 
the platforms. But that just tells you that place is always freaking cold, summer or winter. Well, Lake 16 has enough algae build up there that, you know, in the deeper water, you just never get any light down there. Yeah. Yeah, I've there's been a few times I've been surprised. We had some dives earlier in this, I don't know if it was this season or last season. Uh, where, three years it, ago. Where we had some, it was pretty bright. There's only been a couple times when you get down to 60 feet, you can do it without a light. And then, and so Mac, you, you didn't get a dive in this last week. Is that possible? Oh, I, I was dry this week. Oh my gosh, that's got to be like a record for the year. That's just about the first time in a long time. In a long time. Yeah. Well, I, I got just the one actual dive in. I had an attempted dive where um, Rob, Rob, and I went looking for a scuba tank and borrowed Max smell detector and. Uh, we were prepared to die, but ended up just doing some real serious waiting. Um, but then Dan and I had plans to uh, dive the big water last Sunday, um, but found out that the weatherman was being less than honest. We had a forecast of uh, one to three foot waves subsiding, which is diveable. But when we got on the water, it was actually three to five foot waves, which in a 17 foot boat is just not going to happen. Yeah. So we got. We opted for a plan B and went uh, to Lake, went to uh, Diamond Lake, uh, went out to the South Bend wreck where we had been, or Mac and I dove the previous week. Did a little looking around trying to find more evidence of boiler on the wreck. Uh, basically just confirmed the uh, boiler which Mac and I had seen. Uh, Dan did take some pictures of the boiler pipes there. And yeah, and we're quite certain that. Uh, you know the pipes we're seeing there on the wreck and the you know the and the wreck site are the internals from the boiler which is over in the shallows. Really anxious to get out there again in the spring when the uh, weed does, weeds have died back a bit. Do some more uh, hummingbird work in the shallows because you know Mac and I did uh, indicate you know there, there are indications of there being more targets. Not really around the boiler, but in that shallow area that's um, basically where, where the ferry runs back and forth. So yeah. we're kind of to see what's in that area. As we talked about previous, that, that wreck's been moved. So that could have been the, the original location of part of the wreck, and they just chose what they what got moved and what didn't. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what uh, the original site was. You know, cause, and, and some of the things which are down there, on that site are, um, you know, not rec oriented. You know, there is, uh, like some shelves and a, you know, like a, a glass fish chamber, of some sort that you can fill up yeah. a little full of air and t- talk and things. And, yeah. um, if, if you it, get it, a, if you get a chance or somebody does to get down to, uh, uh, just at H2O in the, uh, Goshen Granger area, I believe, uh, they could probably fill in the holes that we have. And they probably told me years ago uh, about it. I, I've just forgotten. Yeah, I should I should get a hold of them because I've I've got more questions for it. Is um, you know when Dan and I were on it, we're looking kind of closely at the engine cradle area. Now there would have been an assembly on the boat, which would have been the pistons, cylinders, crankshaft, uh, which would have been bolted to the drive shaft, which ran the propeller, and the drive shaft is there, 
and the engine cradle is there. And neither of them are mangled to indicate that you know the engine block got blown off or anything. They're actually you know the holes are all intact and it looks pretty good. I'm quite confident that the actual engine block assembly was removed intentionally and salvaged, scrapped, or you know repurposed somewhere. So. Yeah, yeah, that that could be. Well, excellent. That's uh, it's nice to that. That's always a nice blow off site. It's it, for us in our neck of the woods, it's not a huge drive. In the, in the summer, I get a little grumpy. Sometimes we can't get out in Lake Michigan and we want to do Lake 16 because it seems like I spend more time driving to Lake 16 than I I would on a day in the lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. Diamond Lake isn't isn't far at all. Diamond's just a, you know, probably about 30, 35 minutes from here and we can get in the water and play around. Any Dive plans for this weekend? Um, stuff is planned, but kind of depends upon the weather. Um, you know, we're at the point now where the, uh, you know, it's pretty unlikely to get on, on the big water anymore. Oh yeah. So, plan A, we're looking at um, possibly doing the Reeds Lake wreck. Um, plan B would be the big water. All just kind of depends upon what, what Mother, Mother Nature has to say. Yeah, in years past, this has been turning basin time. Before we got on our Niles River kick, we used to hit the turning basin this time of the year. Yeah, we still got the turkey dive coming up, but then again, depending on what the visibility and who wants to do what, we may be back in the river in Niles for a turkey yeah. day dive. Yeah, we'll yeah. find out. We'll have a mud club meeting coming up here. Is it this week? No, not this week. It's a, uh, oh, wow, it's the 15th, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for two weeks. Fifteenth. Time's flying. You, you, you want to do something scary? Figure out how many paychecks you have until Christmas. <laughs> that, that tells you how how quick time is moving this year. One more mud club meeting for the year, and then we've got our uh, Turkey Day dive and the holiday New Year's Eve dive. And then the pre-dives for people who haven't done a lot since then that want to participate. Yeah. It's always encouraged to get in the water so it's not your first time in a long time. Right. In, in this time of year, I recommend you dive at least once a month, if not more often, because you want to start upgrading your undergarments, upgrading your gloves, dive gear, whatever's cold. You need to address that now and not wait till uh, the water's getting hard to find out what's not keeping you warm. And we probably should plan a, one of these coming up episodes and uh, maybe we'll do a wetsuit episode and a dry suit episode. And we'll talk about tips for keeping warm under the water. Cause that seems to be a question people have this time of year. If you're hardcore, freshwater, cold water, low vis divers, you don't stop just because the calendar changes and leaves get in your way. You want to be diving this time of the year. And, you will be rewarded with some additional good visibility, uh, usually. <laughs> no promises, but it's uh, it's usually better. And then we'd like to hear from our Southern Hemisphere divers, find out what type of diving you're getting into your prime time of the season. So we've got our divers from New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, should all be getting in the water, and we'd love to hear about the type of diving you're doing. You can follow us on Scuba Obsessed. 
Facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed at Scuba Obsessed on Twitter. Uh, we appreciate any donations to our Patreon account. We have some Dive Nitrox level donors, Scott Halbert and Vanessa Holmiak. Thank you once again for donating the show. We certainly appreciate it. And we appreciate all our Patreon divers. We have uh, many in the $8 a month level, $10 a month level, uh, $3 a month level. Uh, so certainly a value. Uh, chat room, we are on Talk Show 73759. And like to thank uh, WRVO Radio for putting us on the air. If you like hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors, you can listen to them 24-7. 24-7. What's it, what's it saying? 24-3-7? Why am I mixing that all up? But uh, you can listen to the WRVO radio network, WRVO Outdoors. Uh, you can pick up the app and listen to the, our show and many others. Do we have any shows coming up? It seemed like we were talking about some before the episode. Is there something uh, that you got coming up? Well, I know that... Uh... November 10th, 7 p.m. at the Laudit District Library. That's up in Grand Haven. Uh, Craig Rich is doing a presentation uh, through Surf and Storm, Shipwrecks of the Sunset Coast. And Craig Rich puts on a good show. Uh, looks like he'll be talking about the different shipwrecks in the area. Um, not quite sure how, how diver-oriented it's going to be. I think it probably would be more of a historical presentation than diver-oriented, but it's you know for anyone who has interested in shipwrecks, divers included, I'm sure it should be uh, you know quite worthwhile quite worthwhile show. Sounds like we have a group going up already. Um, so if you dive and you want to go, you won't be alone. So. And then also you had a shipwreck of the week you want to talk about. Yeah. Our, our featured shipwreck of the week we're talk, talking about is the Eber Ward. Um, we're going to be pulling this information from the uh, Straits of Mackinac, the uh, straitspreserve.com. See if I can get this, uh, paste a link here in the chat room here momentarily. Here. There we go. Eber Ward is one of the better wrecks in sport depth to dive. Um, it can be a bit challenging because the uh, weather up in the Straits is, you know, you could just kind of have to take what you're given. It's always good to have a plan B or a plan C when you're planning on diving the straits because just depending upon the wind, um, it's probably not going to be exactly what you're looking for, but there are plenty of wrecks to choose from up there. Uh, Eber Ward went down in 1909, taking five lives along with him. Um, ship had been around since 1888. I'm trying to get the actual page to load up. I'm not, there we go. There we go. Okay, my apologies. Okay, now we're up and running here. Ship was two, is 213 feet long, 37 foot wide, uh, 12 foot depth. Was carrying a cargo of corn, 55,000 bushels. Currently sits at a depth of uh, 110 to 140. Um, cause of sinking is hull damage while going through an ice field. Seems that the uh, Captain believed the ice field they were going through was just uh, slush ice. Um, thought he could get through it no problem. Well, unfortunately, he had problems. 
when he hit it. You know, we got going through it. He hit something hard, and it put a sizable hole in the bow. The hole is very viewable when you're down there. You can um, qualified divers can actually penetrate the ship through the hole and go inside. Um, it's a spectacular wreck. It has a very prominent bow on it. The hull is completely intact. Will save the hole, the hole on the front where, you know, where it, it, it sunk it there. Cabins are gone. Um, I gather some of the, the wood from the cabins is resting alongside of it, uh, but you know, it's a very penetrable wreck for those who are qualified. Uh, has several accessible decks. When um, Jim Schultz and I were at the Straits back in September. We did two dives on this, and uh, a decent penetration as well. It's it is a beautiful, beautiful shipwreck. Um, if you like the old wooden freighters, uh, this is maybe the best one that you're going to see in the Great Lakes. Um, the Eberward sister ship that was the John Moran, which was found last summer, well, a year ago, by Michigan Shipwreck Rich Association. The John Moran lies in 340 feet of water, which is uh, certainly a, a, a tech dive, a very challenging tech dive at that. The John Moran, though, is even more intact than the ward. It has that one even has the cabins on it there. But it's uh, if you should, if you if you can come to the area, it's a marvelous wreck to dive. There are charters in the area. There are dive shops in the area. Um, this. Is a very accessible wreck, very cool wreck, and we're probably the only place in the world you're going to find wrecks like this. This is a so, beautiful wreck, and it'd be worth getting your uh, shipwreck certification to do the penetration just for this wreck. I, I like it. It's that transition period where you were starting to see the wooden vessels get pushed out with the steel, and they had tried to modernize it. I see one point they talked about it, it was being it was fitted for electrical. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I'm not, I, you know, I haven't seen evidence of electrical on it there, but I haven't. I, I've done two dives on it. In, in two dives, I may have seen 20% of the wreck. You know, I'm far from an expert on it there. Um, but it's it's so impressive. I mean, the bow is just, it, it's, a, it's a rather unique bow. Most, you know, the, way, the rail is still there. Um, you know, there are two anchors there. All kinds of artifacts laying around. Uh, you know, you've got you know bathtubs and plumbing, and um, you know I, I don't know if there's any artifacts of real value or anything there. Of course, these are all protected artifacts. We're in a preserve; you can't take anything off these wrecks. But uh, you know, this is well, you know, a favored wreck by by many divers. If you do dive it, uh, bring your camera. There are lots of good photo ops. Or, or better yet, bring a dive buddy with a camera. See, this would be your new profile photo on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Jim and I took a lot of pictures on the Eber Ward on the two dives we did there. Great visibility, too. I want to say we had visibility better than 50 feet in September. So you know, if we'd have gone earlier in the season, I'm sure it would have been even better. But then you, you kind of have a trade-off at the Straits, whereas the early season, of course, has a better visibility, but it's harder to find days where you don't get blown off the water. So later season, more predictable weather, as predictable as the straits can be. Uh, but then uh, the visibility doesn't, you know, 
you know, the, the visibility in late season is not as good as early season, but still was a very respectful, you know, 50 foot when we were there. So great wreck. Um, if you do dive at the straights, our experience has shown to plan your dives for early in the day. Quite often the wind picks up around noonish, and you, you know that maybe is all the diving you, you get done for the day. So plan your dives early, early up there. Well, excellent. Well, thank you for putting that together. Well, I'd just like to uh, spotlight some of the marvelous wrecks we have here. I mean, we, we have, you know, possibly the, the greatest wrecks in the world here in the Great Lakes. I mean, you can come here and take a charter just a couple miles offshore, and, you know, these are better wrecks than you're going to see in, in salt water because salt water, everything, you know, you're going to have, have the reefs getting attached to them and, you know, a lot more you know, colorful, pretty fish on them in salt water. But if you want to actually see the wrecks and the wrecks with the stories, um, the Great Lakes are the place to go. We, we've got it. Come see them. Excellent. Well, Mac, you got anything you want to plug before we get to that time of the show? No, I'm good for this week. I think in the following week we're going to be talking about items like Our World Underwater, uh, Shipwreck Festival, towards Ann Arbor, things like that. Yeah, and if you'd like us to attend any of these shows, drop us a line. Let us know you're going to be there. That will help encourage us to get off our butts and and make it. Because I I know that Mac has been to a few shows and people want to know where we're at. So uh, I go, I go to all of them. You know, the I, I will hit the big four. Yeah, so. I, I don't know if I can make all of them. I've got robotics again. Robotic season is picking up. Uh, I've I've got you know training sessions coming up this Saturday and we're starting to two a week and by January I'll be up to five or six days a week just of building robots with the with the team but uh, if I'm not doing robots I'll be diving now the, the show's coming up we're, we're talking about uh, the ones in the spring we're talking about what uh, ghost ships yep. uh, which is in Milwaukee the Fort Seahorses show which is in um, Ann Arbor Ann Arbor also known as Shipwreck Festival yeah. Then there's Histories and Histories yep. in um, in Holland. That's the MSRA show, and then Our World Underwater in Chicago. That's yep. the four I'm thinking of. There, yep. have, we, have, have we missed anything? Uh, there's a couple in Ohio. Uh, Mac, do you remember what the name of those are? Not right off, but I usually put them on the club calendar. Yeah. So if you go to mugclub.scubaobsessed.com, Mac does an excellent job of keeping that calendar up to date, so you can see some of the shows coming on. And maybe we'll add a show directory this year. It's one of the projects I've had in the back burner for the website that we just need to get is a, an event calendar, which will be listing all the dive shows. Oh, we did get a correction. I'd like to thank uh, our listeners who give us feedback, and we certainly appreciate it. We had a listener. Um, this was Colin M. He said, uh, uh, love the show. Hey, I just recently discovered your podcast. I've been enjoying it. Keep up the good work. In one of your most recent episodes, you spoke of the Salish Sea, which is out of the Pacific Northwest. I know it may sound like being a brood, but I've been growing up kayaking, diving in the Salish Sea, and felt that I suggest a correct pronunciation. This pronounce with a long A, like sail-ish. Like I said, keep up the good work, love the podcast. We certainly appreciate it. We don't take any offense. I do not pretend to be able to pronounce anything, including my own name. And with a couple shots of uh, rum, uh, I'll talk like a pirate. So 
Uh, thank you for calling. We certainly appreciate it. And uh, to our listeners, if you love this or any of our other programs, drop us a donation on Patreon. Follow the links from scubaobsessed.com. A dollar, three dollars, any amount is appreciated and helps us keep this show on the air. We're getting pretty close to being able to upgrade some equipment, uh, so you'll be seeing the benefits of that coming up pretty soon. And I think we are to that time of the show. I Let's have, do it. I have a couple of bad jokes, but we'll stick with the first one. I think maybe last week we did a triple play. Uh, this Hopefully we can get by with just one. And then somebody will have to tell me if I've done, it, uh, done this one. Now, I would put it past me. A scuba diver has been shipwrecked on a desert island for 10 years. Then one day he's down by the shoreline and spots a ship on the horizon. He frantically waves his arm and jumps up and down, shouting until he spies a rowboat being let down into the water of the ship. After 10 minutes later, the rowboat reaches ashore carrying a man in the captain's uniform. Thank Christ for that, said the shipwreck hero. I thought I was never going to be rescued. How long have you been here, asked the captain. Ten years, ten long years, replies the man. Ten years, said the captain. How have you coped all that time on your own? Well, I've been quite a resourceful fellow. I built my own house. There it is over there, number one. But ten years, says the captain. Ten years without sex? Ah, well, that's not true, said the man shyly. Well, what do you mean, inquires the captain. Well, about six months ago, I was down the shore washing my feet when I noticed this ostrich up on the beach beach with its head buried in the sand its tail was facing me well i thought it's been nine and a half years so i crept up behind it and whop oh god that must have been disgusting cries the genuinely shocked captain well it was all right the first five miles but then we got out of step oh jeez <sighs> i don't know who to blame that one on that one has been marinating so long <laughs> Did we lose Mac? <laughs> I will not take credit for that. <laughs> so if you think you've got a better joke, drop us a line at the show at scubaobsessed.com. Until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have fun. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.